Hi, everyone, and welcome back to part two of episode two of Couch to Couch, Making Therapy Make Sense with Chuck LeBlanc. So we're going to dive right back in where we left off, the conversation with Steve Clark. I hope you enjoy. Two examples. One, like in the concept we talked about in the last podcast on OCD, like existential OCD is the fear of, uh, well, a lot, but one that comes up much is the fear of death. Mm-hmm. And the fear of death often, once you dive into it, is actually has everything to do with not living and not about the full stop of death, but actually not living your life now. Mm-hmm. So all of the things that show up from it, you know, put you in a box basically so that you can't live. So you, the fear of death is your fear of not living, fear of missing out, not living the mm-hmm. life you enjoy. All yeah, of the OCD like tendencies you take to stave off death put you in a box so that you can't live your life. Yeah. Right. So the self-fulfilling prophecy is you really want to live. So you can't live. Like yeah. it's, it's that comes up so often. That's just one paradox, but male vulnerability is, is the man just wants to cry, be able to express exactly yeah. what they're feeling. Yeah. Because if you don't, you're isolated. Uh-huh. Everyone else at the funeral is crying. You got to be tough and stand up for, you know, like be with everybody else and be their protector and all that stuff, but you can't be with them. So you end up standing outside of them. Yeah. And it's making you mad because you want to be with them. So what you're doing is making sure you're standing outside of them. Mm-hmm. This is amazing paradox that shows up, but I like this acceptance focus is more of the like address why you're afraid of that to see why it's yeah. important to you. Can I tell you how it shows up for me? Like, mm-hmm. It's so funny how how much I can relate to all the issue, personal issues that you're talking about. Um, I have a very similar social anxiety to what you're describing. And for me, it comes in the form of, I get so worried that I'm not going to like, I'm not going to know what's the right thing to say in a given situation, mm-hmm. um, in the, in a social situation. And my fear, this is my self-fulfilling prophecy, is my fear of not knowing the right thing to say like paralyzes me to the point where my brain just kind of shuts off. I like mm-hmm. dissociate a little bit. Yep. And uh, and uh, yeah, it really feels like I'm like standing behind myself mm-hmm. and like there's just this empty gap between my ears. And I, and I can't think of anything to say, of course. Yep. Because I'm scared of not knowing what to say. Yeah, it's such a common... Like, I have the exact same experience most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's amazing how it shuts you off. Yeah. And I'm curious if, if you find this similar in your experience as well, where I feel like me feeling like I don't know what to say in a social situation is in part a result of like kind of being a person who's a little more in tune with what's really like I'm pretty committed to authenticity and like being myself and wanting others to really be themselves Mm -hmm. and I find a lot of the time when guys get together and start talking about stuff it's kind of very superficial Mm -hmm. and you know talking about like I don't know sports and you know there's nothing wrong with talking about sports <laughs> but uh i'm always kind of hungry for that deeper mm-hmm. conversation and i have this perception that 
in some cases it's probably warranted, but in a lot of cases, it's probably just my fears running away, running away with themselves. Um, I have this fear that if I start talking about that, those deeper topics, that it's just going to make other people awkward and uncomfortable and it's going to kill the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my, it's so funny how much your fears can create the situations that you're afraid of. That's right. You know, and it's so purposeful. Yeah. Right. You're, you're putting up those barriers for yourself. Not like I always say to myself and I say this to my clients all the time. It's not that I'm an asshole, although I can be. Yeah. Um, so I'm not deliberately tripping myself here. Like these yeah. are very important processes that are taking place with purpose. Yeah. There's a reason they're there. I'm not an idiot. So like this is, I'm not trying to hurt myself. I'm yeah. trying very much to protect myself here. Yeah. And it's yeah. only maladaptive because it's actually not what I want to be doing. And I can recognize yeah. that. And it's okay for both to be true. It's yeah. perfectly okay. And that opens yeah, yeah. the world up to allowing yourselves like part of the, part of the way that I work through those moments. Uh, and this is another EFT trick is to use a counter emotion. So for, mm-hmm. for emotional focus therapy, it's about using emotion. You can't logic your way out of these things, right? <laughs> yeah. You have to emo- emote your way out of them. So for me, yeah. like one, uh, I have the opposite, I guess, emotional issue, if I can use it that way, um, than most men in that I'm very uncomfortable with anger. So a lot of my work was to get more comfortable with anger. And mm-hmm. so one of the ways I did that was like, I always called it like a fiery courage is the way I used to put it where okay. I'd be, I'd be put in a situation where my mind's blank. Yeah. And it's super uncomfortable. And I'm going through like the exact same thing you just talked about, <laughs> uh, you know, hanging out with your friends and you want to be vulnerable in a conversation. And so what I'll do is I'll get mad about it. And basically like, it's almost like, <laughs> you know, you know, when you're sending those emails that you don't want to send, you basically close your eyes and press send. Yes. Yeah, that yeah. I get mad about yeah. it and just basically say like, fuck it. And then you just say it and now you're in it. (laughs) Like you can't just leave, like get in your car and just I'm out. (laughs) Yeah. You're in it now. Right. And that was a tactic Mm -hmm. I used with uh, a lot of my anxiety, like stage fright. It's the exact same tactic I used to start doing talks on stage because Mm -hmm. I was, I was so petrified of it that I said, you know, if I just threw myself on stage, you just have to deal with it. I have to do it now. Like I, yeah. I can't run away. And I remember the first time I did it, I passed out. <laughs> you second, pa- you oh, I passed, passed out, out straight up. Yeah. Oh. I woke up. Uh, like what? what? <laughs> I woke up at the end of the venue. <laughs> Somebody had like picked me up and put me on a chair. It was, it was bad. The second time I puked. Oh, oh no. I'm walking up the stairs and I'm like hitting the thing. And it was just basically like a do-do-do, blah. And then I went yeah. on. Yeah. Not good. Uh, but eventually I was able to do it. You know, because I mean, once you pass out and puke on stage, literally nothing worse <laughs> can happen. Yeah. And so I was able to like push myself forward, you know, and like mm-hmm. part of my process was I give speeches behind papers until eventually I like now I don't bring a paper. Like when I do my Facebook lives, I basically I'll research a topic and I press play and now I'm live. <laughs> so I either sit here and just blankly stare and sweat my way through a talk. Or I just jump in because I'm actually passionate about something, so I might as well. So there's yeah. always this moment of, uh, of it's like a fuck it moment where you just get you use anger to push you forward, yeah. and it's more like 
courage. And I'm reminded of Aristotle in that because this is really where I got it from was Aristotle's definition of courage and bravery Mm -hmm. was never, you know, it's not, you're not a brave soldier, as he used to say, if you don't realize that you could die and you go on the battlefield. That's not bravery. Mm -hmm. That's stupidity. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the mean of bravery means like I'm fully aware of consequences of what could happen. Yeah. And I'm going to do it anyway. Like it's okay. So essentially it's okay that I'm terrified. Yeah. It's perfectly fine that I'm sweating, but I know deep down, I want to do this. Like I'm passionate about it. So it's okay for me to want that as well. And so you carry that with you and you're fully you on stage. Yeah. Right. And some of the consequences just as an aside is I don't remember most things I say. Somebody has to tell me afterwards, like how the speech went, because I don't remember. Because you're kind of in a in a daze. I'm I'm like full on zone mode. Yeah. uh, Carried by the energy of uh, fear, enthusiasm, cocktail. Yeah. But it gives you. It's the same in those situations when you're with your friends. You're having a bonfire with a bunch of your guy friends, and something comes up for you, and you want to like say it. Yeah. Like I, my brain starts to drown itself out so that i don't do it it's almost i always picture like a friend going like don't do it just (laughs) don't do it but then you do it anyway and then your fear is like oh shit okay yeah and now we're in it and i I find like when that happens most people join in Mm -hmm. which is yeah well and and i don't know about you but like speaking of narrative therapy i have this narrative about myself that's pretty strong narrative i'm like you know constantly trying to prove it wrong um but it's still a pretty powerful voice in in my head of uh believing that i'm somehow different from other men mm-hmm. and it makes perfect sense that that would be a belief that i have and i and it would make perfect sense if it's a belief that a lot of men have mm-hmm. because you're aware of your own emotional experiences and then you look out at the world and you see all these other men who apparently don't have the same emotional experiences because you never see them expressed mm-hmm. and and then it's very easy for me anyways to come to the conclusion like oh i am i'm just an emotional guy i'm very unusual in that way because mm-hmm. i'm emotional but then when you do get in these situations where you start um talking with other guys about the the deeper stuff you realize like no like they're all everyone's kind of hungry to have these conversations and everyone's terrified to have these conversations Mm -hmm. and it's amazing how much safety it creates when one person becomes you know becomes vulnerable and Mm -hmm. uh yeah yeah it leads to a beautiful process i like that you brought up narrative therapy there because um what it na- makes me think of is, you know, and this is for the sake of the listeners here, because I know you know this. So this is just well, to, to guide actually, them through it. I'm I'm not that familiar with narrative therapy. Like I get yeah. the basic concept, but like I've really only read about it in a textbook. So, well, let me walk you through it. It's uh, I'll walk you through it just in this context. Okay. Uh, I was taken by, by narrative therapy pretty big because it's put, you know, I was studying Foucault and Deleuze and the principle behind narrative therapy, the basic principle, is that the, 
like I said before, the person's not the problem. The problem is the problem. Mm-hmm. And that's a funny, like gimmicky thing to say. But when you unpack it, what it's talking about is narrative therapy comes from a postmodern perspective. Yeah. Meaning there is no individualism or essentialism in narrative therapy. So they don't view a person as like, there's no core Steve, right? So if like, if we came down and pulled out your essence and like addressed, okay, this is what makes a Steve or this is what yeah. makes a Chuck. What we're going to find is there's nothing core there. It's more how Steve was molded by his practices, whatever practices he engaged in the society engaged in what history, like where do you find yourself now? Cisgen white male, you know, white male, what does that mean? How are we socialized? And so it's all about the relationships that we have to the world. Yeah. You know, economic status, all of the things like everything it's we're fundamentally our practices. And one of the things that they show is like, try to sit here and we don't have a lot of time for this, but I'll give you like a thought experiment to use. Later is like, try to sit there and and try to find out who you are outside of what you do, like your, your general practices. And you'll find that you can't, right? (laughs) If I say like, I like, Chuck likes social interaction, right? How the hell would I have known that if I didn't practice social interaction Yeah. to figure out if I like it, Uh, Mm. you know, like romantic relationships of a certain kind. Well, I had to engage in those practices to figure out that I liked it, which simply means it, all it means is that human beings are multi-storied. Our identity comes from multiple different practices that we engage in. Okay. Most of them are changeable by engaging in other practices while keeping mind keeping in mind that how habits are formed, like neurobiologically. Yeah. Right? So your brain will form towards these habits, making them harder to break, but they come from these practices. So how this comes out in therapy is so let's take the male vulnerability. So if, if you and I went through like a session, we would find out that what the problem is, is isolation. And so isolation, we, we, would, we would externalize that by saying, okay, Steve, what does isolation, what is its goals for you? Well, it's, it wants me to be alone. It, it wants me to like get into a castle or no man is an island. It wants me to find that island. Yeah. So how does it do it? Well, it tells me that other people are, I'm different from other people. So other, other men don't show their emotions. They've got their shit together. I don't. So I better like stay in <laughs> yeah. this island because I'm going to find out I'm weird. I'm not going to have friends. Right. So it brings shame to the party to make sure you stay there. Yeah. Right. Till, till ultimately, and then, you know, everything has an ultimate goal. Whatever that mm-hmm. means. Isolation usually ends up in some sort of like social death. And so what you're basically doing in narrative therapy is isolating the problem, externalizing it. That's pretty big. Yeah. And showing how it's reinforced by the practices that you're undertaking and the practices of society. Because sometimes, you know, a lot of male vulnerability issue is society based. Our fathers taught us not to have emotions. The rock ripping off a tank made me want to have big biceps, even though that's probably not the way to go. Right. Um, so all of these things are reinforcing this feeling of being alone. And then, you know, one common question in, in narrative therapy is like, so, so you're a father. Yep. So one common question would be, 
you know, if isolation showed up and started influencing your daughter and she went through the same things, how would you feel about isolation? Oh, yeah. Right. It's almost like saying if isolation had a face, would you punch it? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so you're, once you're able to see it separate from yourself, yeah, it opens up a framework where you can now see yourself outside of it, which some problems are so thick that you can't see yourself outside of it. So how the hell are you supposed to think of like alternative ways of being or even dream of a world where it's not there if it's part of your identity? Does, does the term self mess with your head as much as it messes with mine? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have sleepless nights thinking about that, like every good philosopher should. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Like when you talk about separating yourself from... from, Like when when you talk about not having a core self, there's a part, there's definitely a part of me that really resists that notion. Like, no, there's something in there. Yeah, I get mad about it. I'm like knee deep in this stuff and I'm still trying to reconcile that. Well, two things, self and agency, personal agency. I've recently discovered where agency comes from. I don't want to derail the train, so I'm going to shelf that. But the self is still like... Agency as in free will? Yes. Yes, (laughs) kind of. Free will is a bit too big for me. Yeah. Although I buy it. Like, I'll be honest, like I have a belief in it. Okay. So that's like faith in it, but I don't totally understand how it operates. So I can't say like, we all have free will mm-hmm. because I don't, I don't quite know what it means outside of having faith in it. Mm. It just, so it's like saying that sounds about right, but I haven't really, really dove in. So like in narrative therapy, postmodern philosophy specifically. So this is Foucault, let's say. Yeah. Where agency comes in is critical reflection meaning we can be we can be in these practices of isolation let's say but we have the power right but we have the power being human to critically reflect on them we can eventually Mm -hmm. through therapy or through discussion come to a point where we're like oh shit i don't like being isolated yeah right and then have it separate from us and go maybe that's not the way to do it so we can choose how that goes and that's what agency yeah. is like which, in that context which all, yeah yeah so it comes back to carl rogers and yep. increasing your awareness of your experience which is like yeah i'm amazed at how much he ties in but like one one thing he talks one thing he brings into it is cybernetics which is like mm-hmm. something that i really want to learn more about I, I really just have a cursory understanding of cybernetics um, but it's the, the, the study of how systems operate mm-hmm. and, and understanding the human, an individual human as a system. And, and, and basically, the more information that a system has access to, the more capable it is of adapting to the situation that it's presented with. Mm-hmm. Right? Like if you walk into a room and the lights are out, and uh, you're just kind of bumping into everything. You're getting lots of information by feel, but if you were able to see everything as well, you'd be able to function a lot better in the situation, which is why like increasing your awareness of your internal experiences, which is the only way that you perceive the external world. Mm -hmm. 
um, the more acceptance you have of those experiences, the more of them are allowed into your conscious awareness, then the better you can just handle whatever life throws at you. Yeah, the more robust uh, decisions you can make as to where you want to go. Like that's a very Nietzschean principle where it's like everything for Nietzsche, and this is where I could be lynched by the philosophy side of things, people, but in my experience of Nietzsche, it's all about getting out of your own way. Yeah. Right? Allowing the active principle to take hold by getting out of your own way. So by addressing the ways in which you're getting in your own way. Yeah. Which, I mean, kind of ties into everything you've talked about today. Because that reminds me of the acceptance therapy in a way, because it's like, take a look at what you're afraid of and you'll find Mm -hmm. the ways you're holding back. Mm -hmm. But you're also going to find why you're holding back, why it was important. Yeah. You don't, that's why you don't judge them. Like I know part of a deep part of how I do therapy is, is spending a lot of time removing judgment from the ways in which you're protecting yourself. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. There's a reason it's there. Right. Even down to alcoholism. It's like, there's a reason the bottle was picked up. Yeah. Right. It's your amygdala responded to danger. It was the most immediate way you can numb the pain. So in an immediate sense, present exact moment, it did its job. The long-term consequences are maladaptive and painful. So we want to shift that, but it's not, don't judge that. Mm -hmm. Right. But where was I going with that? Yeah. With the, with the active principle, it's all about, okay, well, if I get out of my own way, then I open myself up into being who I am. Mm -hmm. Right. And if I just bring back to my own personal experiences, like I'm an incredibly enthusiastic guy and that caused that enthusiasm caused a lot of the social rejection I had growing up because people had a difficult time handling that. Yeah. So a lot of my Uh, protection mechanisms are designed for them, Chuck. I know. Right. (laughs) Um, A lot of it was designed to curb that enthusiasm to dull yeah. myself out, to make me more acceptable to the people around me, which from yeah. a Foucaultian, Foucaultian standpoint and narrative therapy, that's called normalization. Uh, the ways in which we make people normal, right? So we act in a certain way to basically nudge people into being more normal, which is more means more socially acceptable. And that's damaging, severely damaging and limiting. Yeah. But it's a natural consequence of being social people just do it yeah. so for me i was normalized that way so my enthusiasm dampered and the more my enthusiasm dampered the more depressed i get the more anhedonia starts to see to seep up you know i lose the flavor all of these things start happening yeah. and the cure has always been to get out of my own way right it's the fuck it principle for me it's personal for everybody yeah but with the nietzschean perspective and i guess some more uh carl rogers is really just when you can remove, so Carl Rogers terms, those introjections. So yeah. realize when you are criticized from, let's say your parents, because he uses that a lot. Those criticisms were designed, let's say, because your parents needed to control you. Not because yeah. you're doing anything wrong, but because they couldn't handle it. Yeah. Then once you remove those, you're, you can become more of that self. So for me, when I become more social and I get out of my own way, my enthusiasm increases like tenfold. <laughs> so I get more and more hyper and like really pumped to be doing whatever the hell I'm doing. Yeah. And that's just how, that's the practices I enjoy. I enjoy being enthusiastic. And when you can let that fly, then the world opens up for you. You yeah. end up doing things so, that you never would before. 
Absolutely. But like, how do you manage, like, do, do you find that like when you open yourself up and you start allowing that enthusiasm for life to, to come out, like you said in the past, you experienced like social rejection as a result of that. Like, <clears throat> does that still happen? Like how does. So now you're on to the, like the note of how this works. That's vulnerability 101, right? So if you yeah. think of uh, Brene Brown talks about vulnerability, like getting into the arena as a gladiator yeah. without any yeah. armor, right? Yeah. So it's, what you have to understand is all of these protections that you're placing. So the things that yeah. isolate me or dumb me down, they're designed to stop people from rejecting me by, by not giving them reasons to, right? So by getting out of my own way, it means increasing my own confidence and acceptance of who I am, okay. which allows me to decide the type of people I want in my life, which also allows me to go through social rejection and recognize that I'm going to be, I am a lot to handle. And I know that, but that's okay. Right. So the people who want to handle that, who enjoy that are going yeah. to be around me. And the people who don't are not, you know, cause part of my core core values is so, that I'm not a malicious person. So I'm not going to go <laughs> out and just like step on everybody's toe, <laughs> toes and be a dick. Yeah, yeah. So I know like I'm not going to do that. Your personality becomes a filter for the people in your life. Like that's right. Um, yeah, the people that can't handle you that you, you can probably do without them, right? That's it. That's right. Then I can just do it. Like it's it'll hurt. Like you get hurt. Yeah. You, know, you get the bruises and all that stuff. You cry about it. You feel sad for yourself. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't become isolating. It doesn't become a conversation with myself that says there's something wrong with me. And yeah. it also doesn't become a conversation where I say there's something wrong with these people. Yeah. It's more, you, some people are allergic to peanut butter, so they don't eat it. <laughs> so yeah. like, why would you feed the peanut butter basically? <laughs> yeah. I, it's interesting because I actually had a bit of a, like, like, like this is like the first lengthy conversation we've had in 10 years mm-hmm. or so. I don't know exactly how long. Um, and I was actually a little bit worried that I had an experience where there's this, there's this kid I used to to see fairly often when I was younger and he's like a very energetic, enthusiastic, outgoing person. And I love that about him. Like it's very refreshing to be around. And, uh, and then, you know, one thing led people just, you know, start leading different lives and we, we didn't end up seeing each other for a very long time. And then one day, like 10 or 15 years later, I saw him when we were both adults. And I remember he was just like, seemed like a very subdued person, like just very kind of introverted and quiet. And, and I, I, I remember like being like disappointed. I was like, where did the, where did the energy go? Like what happened to this guy? And I don't know. I don't, I don't know anything about his story. I don't want to make uh, any hard, fast assumptions, but I had the impression that like, I don't know, somewhere along the way, he'd like decided not to, to stop expressing that part of himself. Mm. And uh, anyways, when, uh, when you asked me to come on and, and talk to you and stuff, um, I was remembering Chuck from back in the philosophy days and, and I, I was a little bit worried like I was like I, I wonder if he's gonna like 
if that energy is going to be there, if he's going to be like passionate. And, and uh, I was worried that, yeah, that you might have kind of quieted that part of yourself down. And I'm, I'm it just makes me very happy to hear that you're um, embracing your enthusiasm for life. Because, yeah, I think that's a, a beautiful part of you. Well, thank you. It is one of my favorite parts about being me. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I always say, it's a miracle that we're here in the first place. <clears throat> yeah. You know, we're, we are the only us that's ever existed. Yeah. And we get one shot to see it. Yeah. So let, let's see the most of it. Yeah. It's, it's like, might as well, like, just live mm-hmm. life to the fullest, right? Mm-hmm. It's cliche, simple, simple thing to say, a lot harder to put into action, but. Yeah, like why not experience the the discomfort that precedes greatness, you know? Like mm. like it's it's so worth it to 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 walk through that kind of hazy cloud of discomfort to get to what's on the other side. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you walk through it once and then you're done, but that's part of being continue, alive. <laughs> yeah, to continually make that decision every day to like allow allow yourself to experience your anxiety to the point where you figure out what's actually hiding underneath it, and uh, and and figure out what's like really important to you and what your values are and and what you actually want out of your life, and, and then go for it. Yeah, you know, when you get a beat on something. Yeah, that's something I say so often because I guess that's me. When you get a beat on something, go for it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. You're enthusiastic and passionate for a reason. It's right yeah. in front of you. Like with the Dante stuff, it was, you know, I was sitting in a class one day and somebody started talking about the philosophy of love. That's what mm-hmm. it was, and I was like, "What the hell does that even mean?" <laughs> like that's amazing, and then I just like ran with it for four years, which led me to like the next thing, and then yeah, right, yeah. and it, it, they're all connected. It's all connected to the human experiences and how we live. Yeah. yeah. But I sometimes think of, you know, what would have happened had I not pursued that? What would have happened to me as a person had I just saw that, been like, eh, and then like walked on with my day? I would be an entirely different person now had I not done that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, and I'm so glad that I, I, I was very hesitant to like, you know, get my master's in counseling and, and uh, sometimes I think, yeah, like what, what would life be like right now if I hadn't taken that leap? Mm-hmm. And my wife was so supportive and encouraging. She, she I, ever, ever since I first mentioned the idea, she was like, yep, that makes perfect sense. That's what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that's awesome to have that kind of support it's amazing yeah well great so we uh this was a lot longer than usual so thanks very much for going on that ride with me (laughs) yeah no it was great um there's so much to so many different directions to go like there's like 10 different you know when you're having a conversation you like 
along along the path of the conversation you notice all these side paths going yeah. off like there's a lot of side paths that i like had to like intentionally choose not to go down but I, f- I feel like we have a lot more to talk about i guess that's what i'm trying to say definitely yeah definitely well let's stay connected we'll definitely have you on the show i know you're moving to are you moving to ontario soon that's the plan um as you know the way the world is right now it's yep. very difficult to make any definitive plans um but yeah like possibly this summer cool that's that's the plan is for this summer if if all goes as we hope and expect it to well that's great good luck with the move and we can hang out in person yeah that'd be awesome yeah we have definitely more to dive into (laughs) yeah all right well take care steve and we'll see you when i see you all right thanks All right, well, we hope you enjoyed part two of episode two with Steve Clark talking about philosophy, psychology, anxiety, male vulnerability, and all of the above. Stay tuned for episode three, which is coming up next Monday, and we'll take it from there. This is Chuck LeBlanc from Couch to Couch. Take care.